Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, Upper Room. I'll be reading today from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seating on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, and each, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, and a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Just want to invite to the front Pastor Sundar Krishnan. Um, hopefully he's, uh, he's familiar to many of you by now. Pastor Sunder is actually Pastor Vijay's dad, and he is the, the longtime uh, pastor, uh, lead pastor and teaching pastor at Rexdale Alliance Church. He's been there for many years. Um, Vijay's actually preaching at Rexdale this morning, and so they're doing a little pastor swap, father and son swap this morning too. So we're just thrilled that you're here joining us and excited to hear the word of God from you this morning. Well, it really is a pleasure for me always to be here. And, you know, it's a bit of an unfair exchange because Vijay has to preach three times. I get to preach only once here. <laughs> but actually, it was a pleasure for me last night to worship in our own congregation and listen to my son preach. <clears throat> and I'm just so thankful to the Lord for that. Uh, you just began a new series last week, If This Is True Then. And one of the things you had pointed out to you last week was that the... Events of Jesus' life, especially his death and his resurrection, were not kind of standalone stories, but they were actually part of a, something, a much, much bigger story. And your last week's sermon actually began with Genesis, and you actually looked at the first few chapters in, the, in, in, that, uh, in the Bible, and how the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the events of Holy Week, are actually a, a consummation of something that started that long ago. And I want to do the same thing this morning, the second message in this series, if this is true, uh, is to, again, go to the bigger story of which this is a part and trace one particular theme for us so that by the end of it, we can complete this sentence once again, if this is true, the res crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, then what follows from there? I'm going to kind of come at it from the proverbial left field. You're wondering, what does this have to do with the journey that we're on? So kind of bear with me. Come with me on this journey. When I think of the word holy. It's, it's a common word. Those of us who are Christ followers use it regularly. We sang it in the songs this morning. And we become a regular part of our uh, Christian vocabulary. And 
even perhaps for many people who may not consider themselves followers of Jesus, the word holy is not necessarily a strange word to them. They have some sense that it is associated with God and it belongs in church. And they often, sometimes it can even be used in, in non-religious settings. But what exactly is holiness? It's, it's unique. Uh, in the passage that was read for us from Isaiah, uh, the angels are portrayed as singing holy, holy, holy. And in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, in chapter 4, we see another picture of heaven. And again, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, nowhere in the Bible do you find any of the other attributes of God repeated, not just once, but twice repeated. Nowhere do we read wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. We don't read love, love, love. We don't read mercy, mercy, mercy anywhere. So, holiness is not just one of the attributes of God. Holiness is not even the main attribute of God. Holiness is something that is so foundational to God that it qualifies everything else about God so that his wisdom is a holy wisdom. His mercy is a holy mercy. His love is a holy love. So it becomes extremely important for us to understand what exactly the word holy means. And you know, it's not something you can take for granted. A few years ago, I was preaching in a large megachurch in California and was meeting with the worship team leaders before. And the worship, main worship leader, godly young man, said to me, he said, what does holiness actually mean? Interesting question coming from a worship leader, right? What does it mean? Now, instinctively, we associate holiness with moral purity. You know, a holy person is a morally pure person. And so when you apply it to God, why God is infinitely holy means he's infinitely morally pure. Now that's certainly there. It's certainly a crucial part of our understanding of holiness, but it actually involves much, much more than that. The, the moral purity dimension of holiness is only a subset, an important subset, but only a subset of something much, much larger. I owe some of these insights to an incredible book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. And if you want, if you want to read a book that will really prostrate you, uh, it's a well worth reading. Uh, he talks about the fact how the word for holy comes from an old word that means to cut. And when you cut something, imagine if I just were to take some scissors and cut this piece of paper, I would separate one piece of paper from another. And so... When you cut something, you're actually separating it. So the fundamental idea behind the word holiness is, 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 is to separate. And we often use the word cut in a very similar sense of separation and setting apart in a class by itself. So you might think of a hockey player. You know, whether I had the wonderful privilege of seeing people like Bobby Orr right in their heights. You know, uh, it's hard to believe that there were people that were much better players than uh, somebody who was actually better than Wayne Gretzky, way better than Sidney Crosby, better than Alex Ovechkin. Bobby Orr was that, and I had an incredible privilege of seeing. Him. And people would often say, "Well, that man is a cut above everybody else," and we use that language all the time, right? So and so is a cut above something. We mean we mean they are in a class all by themselves. That is actually the fundamental meaning or the idea associated with the word holy. That something that is holy is set apart by itself without any necessary connection to purity. That's why in the Bible we have holy ground. Uh, we have holy anointing oil. 
Jerusalem is called the holy city. Now, oil and ground and cities don't have moral attributes associated with them. Yet they are called holy. Because the central idea is that they're set apart. Jerusalem is the holy city. It's set apart in a way no other city is. The anointing oil that God prescribed that the Old Testament priests would use was separate in a class by itself. And so that's the fundamental meaning. Now when you apply that to God, it means that he is in an absolute infinite class by himself. God is an infinite cut above everything else. His wisdom is infinitely above every other wisdom. His love is above every other love. His and therefore, when you apply it to his moral purity as well, that's in a class all by itself. And when you take the sum total of all of these things, his infinitely holy wisdom, holy love, holy justice, you get what is called glory that we sang about. Glory. When we say glory, God's glory, that's what we mean. It's the sum total of all of his perfections. Not just his moral perfections, but that he is this infinite cut above everything. He is not the best. He is not the greatest. He is the only. That's the key idea behind the word holy. Now, because God is, in that sense, the only holy person, because he's all by himself. He and he alone has the ability to make other things holy in the broad sense of setting them apart. For example, if I were to ask you, what is the first thing in the Bible that God calls holy? You might be surprised. We read it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The first thing that God calls holy is time. And he sets apart this Sabbath day as holy. So that one in seven, today for most of us, not for preachers, but for everybody else today, is in a class all by itself. God has set it apart and blessed it in a way that no other day has been blessed. Then he also blesses space. For example, in the book of Exodus, you remember when Moses was arrested by the burning bush, God says to him, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, a few moments ago, it was like any other place, the backside of the Arabian desert. Nothing, that sand wasn't any different from any other sand. But all of a sudden, because God showed up in there, it became holy. It was in a class by itself. So he calls time holy, he calls space holy, and then, of course, he calls people holy. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, which parallels, by the way, Exodus chapter 19. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So holy here doesn't mean that any better. In fact, when you, God used this of Israel, he said, I chose you not because you were the greatest. I actually chose you because you were the smallest. Holy here simply means you've been set apart. Israel in the Old Testament and we the church today in the New Testament. So, holy time, holy space, holy people. And you know, it's an interesting thing. Every time we gather together for worship like you are today, if you notice there's a convergence of these three things. There's a time that's set apart for you. One day in seven. There's this place, which by itself is not holy. This place could even be unholy. But, God sets it apart. And then you are a holy people. Have you ever thought of Sundays like that? If you did, you wouldn't want to miss one Sunday. Because you never know what's going to happen when holy space, holy time, and holy people all converge together in the same place. 
So that's the idea behind holiness. Now, what does an encounter with holiness look like? One of my favorite authors, a man named Ben Patterson, he talks about how we have become desensitized to holiness. He says, we have handled holy things for so long that our hands have become cauterized to holiness. If you're not periodically shocked by what God says and does, then you're probably not listening to God. <laughs> you know, he tells a humorous story which drives home the point. I think it was about Theodore, one of the Roosevelt, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt, he was presiding at one of these boring, interminable state dinners where he had to stand in line and keep shaking people. And he came to this conclusion that nobody was listening to what he was really saying. So he decided to test his hypothesis by saying to the next person, I just murdered my mother-in-law. And he said, my, my suspicions were immediately confirmed when people just continued to keep nodding niceties to him until one person said, I'm sure she had it coming to her, sir. You know. <laughs> and he uses that story to drive home the fact that we have handled holy things for so long. And, and it's, it's, it's a particularly a risk for people like me who are called to do this all the time. And, and every time I read it, I'm, this morning again, I, oh God, I got up earlier than I normally do because I didn't want to preach on this and just simply have my hands cauterized to holiness. So that's what he says. He said, if you're not periodically shocked by what God says and does, you're probably not listening to God or, not, or, or you're not encountering the real God. So I want to walk you through some of those encounters this morning. They aren't really the most favorite passages from which people speak from. The first one comes from the book of Leviticus. If you want to where to find it quickly in the Bible, look at the least used pages and you'll find it there. This is where God set up the whole priesthood and Aaron, the high, first high priest, and his sons have all been ordained. It was a seven-day ordination ceremony to drive home to them the importance of the solemn office that God was setting out. Their job was to manage in the best sense of the word the worship life of God's people. A holy people worshiping a holy God. And so the first offering is all ready and Moses and Aaron go into the presence of God and they come out and here's what we read in chapter 9 verses 23 to chapter 10 verse 2. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. It was a shout of joy. God was visibly demonstrating his pleasure by consuming the offering. And then it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. One moment fire comes out from God to consume the offering, and people are rejoicing. They're prostrate with joy. The next moment the fire comes down and consumes not the offering, but consumes the offerers. And they're dead. What was so bad about what they did? This wasn't defiling the temple with cult prostitution and things like that. Just a little worship innovation, that's all. So what was it? The Bible tells us that God 
instantly. Tried them, pronounced judgment on them, and executed them. Notice the phrase, unauthorized files. They offered to the Lord unauthorized file. Now, what made this unauthorized? Was it the people? Or was it the incense that they used? We don't know. It doesn't say. Either way, they took something that was ordinary and they treated it as holy. Or they took something that was holy and treated it as ordinary. One is profanity, the other one is sacrilege. But they're, they're mixing up of these two categories. God had set apart certain people and he had set apart certain ways in which they were to offer the sacrifice and they played fast and loose with that. And for that, they were immediately consumed. I mean... Can you imagine the mood in the camp that night as they went to bed? Two smoldering heaps, two dying embers. Only one of them was the consumption of the offering. The other was the consumption of Aaron's sons. If, that's what, if something like that happened here, what kind of mood would you be in as you filed out at the end of the service? That's the trauma of holiness. That's a traumatic encounter with the Holy God. Let's move on to Samuel. We're moving along in the history of God's people. David has captured Jerusalem, the impregnable city. He is now bringing the Ark of God back to the city, to this holy city. The Ark represented Israel's most sacred cultic object, which contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded and a jar of that manna with which God sustained them in the wilderness. It it's occupied that place called the Holy of Holies, that central, perfectly cubical structure right within the heart of the temple where only the high priest could go, only once a year and only on the Day of Atonement. Anybody went any other time, including the high priest, they would die. And so this ark was being transported into Jerusalem. So they put it on an ox cart and they were walking along and this ox cart hit a rut in the ground and it tilted and the Ark of the Covenant was about to drop on the ground and Uzzah, one of the men responsible for it, reached out to touch it so that it wouldn't drop to the ground. Here's what we read next. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Not what anybody was expecting. I mean, this was supposed to be an amazing celebration. The ark of God being brought in. David, victorious king. And somebody dies just for touching the ark? I mean, God is supposed to be a God who is slow to anger and long-suffering. <laughs> and here, unprovoked. His anger just exploded. This time it wasn't a worship innovation. It was a technological innovation. Now they were supposed to carry the ark on their shoulders. But the ox cart was the latest invention. Things move along much faster with an ox cart, right? So why, why should we carry it? It doesn't make any sense. When God's instructions don't make sense, just change them. Use technology to speed things along. 
I don't know about that, but really, tell me something. Shouldn't God actually have been thankful to Uzzah? I mean, after all, the ark was about to fall to the ground, right? And here was a man who was stopping that ark from falling to the ground. Hey, God, you should be thankful to this man. Instead, you just execute him. What's going on here? Well, if you read the book of Numbers, God gave very specific instructions. Numbers 4.15 And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohat shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. They were specifically told how to transport it. And they said, you, you cannot touch this. It's holy. It's set apart. And they touched it. He should have known better. Remember, they were, seven days were spent in their ordination. These things were clearly specified to them. And Sproul points out something very interesting. He said, which was more sinful? Uzzah's hand or the ground? <laughs> he said, the ark could have fallen on the ground. It would not have been better. The ground is morally neutral, but not a sinner's hand. And he touched it and he was struck dead. There's an encounter, a traumatic encounter with the holiness of God. Now, sometimes people say, well, this is exactly why I don't like the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book full of wrath and anger. I, I want Jesus and the New Testament, okay? Let's go to an encounter with the holiness of God in the New Testament. This time it's the book of Acts. The apostles have been preaching. Many people have come to Christ. And many of the people are poor. The, the poor had the gospel preached to them, and the poor responded. And so those who had wealth in terms of land, periodically through the spontaneous generosity that the Holy Spirit produced within them, sold their pieces of land and brought it to the apostles who then distributed it to the poor. And one particular couple were Ananias and Sapphira. And so they did this. They decided to sell a piece of land and give all the money. But for whatever reason, we don't know why, the scripture doesn't tell us, they decided to hold back part of that money. And even that was okay. But they made it appear like they were giving everything. You know what happened? They both dropped dead. You should ask that question next time people say, how come we aren't like the book of Acts these days? Would you like two people to drop dead during an offering? What happened there? Peter says to them, the house was yours, or the land was yours before you sold it. The money was yours after you sold it. It belonged to you. Why did you lie? See, once something was dedicated to God, that was holy. That was set apart. The Old Testament word for that was devoted. And you don't touch something that's devoted to God. Again, they were taking that which was holy and treating it as commonplace. Sacrilege, profanity, just like the unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu. Now you look at these three incidents. Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira were amazed. How can you do this, God? What kind of a God are you? Sproul calls this the locus of misplaced amazement. We're amazed at the wrong thing. And he goes on to point out that 
No, no, we shouldn't be amazed at the fact that God struck five people dead like this. We should be amazed at the fact that only five people were struck dead in the Old Testament like this. Because this is what all of us deserve. Every single one of us is marked by sin. You learned that last week. This is what all of us deserve. But only five of them got it. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is not a God of wrath but unbelievable mercy and grace. That's what we should be amazed at. That's what he calls it, the locus of misplaced amazement. We're amazed at the wrong things. If we only understood what holiness was like, and what a traumatic encounter with holiness would really look like, we would be amazed at how gracious God really is and has been to us. You know, God's wrath is not like your wrath and mine. People react against this idea of a, of a wrathful, angry God because they think his anger is like ours. Think of the things that make us angry. We get angry because external factors cut off our objectives. You get angry at somebody that cuts you off on the highway. Well, that's, you, you endangered me. You got me upset. You could have killed me. Or now I'm going to be late. External objects that block my goals create anger within me. Or sometimes anger comes from being hurt. You hurt me, you hurt what's dear to me. And so I'm angry. That's true, those are some of the things that make us angry. But think with me for a minute, none of those things apply to God. If he's sovereign... Nothing can stop God's action. So nothing blocks God's goals. So he's not angry for that reason. Also, it is impossible to hurt God. So he can't be angry for that reason. It is impossible for God to be angry the way you and I are angry. So when the Bible speaks about God's wrath, it's not that kind of stuff at all. Ah, he didn't get what he wanted, so he's just exploding. That kind of a God would be not worth worshipping. No, God's anger is a description, or God's wrath, of the inevitable consequences when sin meets holiness. I mean, think of the last time or the next time you cook something on a griddle. You know how sometimes you just sprinkle a little bit of water on that griddle to see if it's hot enough, right? What happens? What happens when you sprinkle cold water on a hot plate? It just kind of curls up into a little ball, dances around all over the plate, and disappears in a wisp of smoke and steam, right? Now, nobody in their right mind would say that that hot plate or griddle was angry with the water droplet. No, no, no. What happens there is inevitable. Given the nature of cold water and given the nature of hot steel, when those two things come into contact, only one thing can happen. The cold water cannot withstand the presence of hot. That's exactly what the wrath of God means. Given my sinfulness and given God's infinite holiness, when those two things clump close together, only one thing can happen. We begin to disintegrate. So I want to now take you to two more stories in the Bible where the same thing should have happened to these two people that happened to these five individuals we've looked at, but instead we see grace. We see what amazingly happens and what should be the thing that should amaze us. Isaiah. We read that passage. Isaiah was a prophet of God, probably Israel's greatest prophet. And he went to the temple as he's probably gone many, many times. 
showing up in church like you do many times and he went to the temple. We don't know why he went, but he surely wasn't expecting what happened. And you saw, you saw that read in the passage. He suddenly was confronted by a holy God. This is what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And look what happens next. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. And that word, Hebrew word translated lost means I am undone. I am disintegrating. I am coming apart at the seams. In other words, he says, oh my goodness, what happened to Nadab and Abihu? What happened to... And Isaiah would know all those stories well. <laughs> it's happening to me! What did happen was not what happened to those people. What did happen amazingly that he didn't disintegrate. Instead, Instead, a fire, a coal, blazing hot coal, touched the man's lips. And God said, you're clean. And I will now commission you to preach on my behalf. And Isaiah preached about the Holy One of Israel more than any other prophet did. <laughs> instead of disintegration, instead of judgment, there was inexplicable mercy. There was cleansing. The very heat that should have consumed the man cleanses the man. That's amazement. This is amazing grace, we sang. How rightly. This is unfailing love. One more story. New Testament this time. To show you that it's all the same, doesn't change. Peter, one of the leading apostles, fishermen, so they'd fished all night and they didn't catch any fish. <laughs> and so Jesus says to them, drop the nets again. Now you, you got to just imagine Peter's reaction. He was a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish. And you know what, loud, what, you know what Peter would have loved to say? Huh? You, you're a carpenter, right? You're a rabbi. You know about fishing? I know when the fish bite. They bite at night, not in the morning. I'll show you. Just because you say so. <laughs> Sounds like obedience. I kind of think what Peter was, might have been thinking was, I'll show you. Because you say so, I'll drop it and you'll see the empty net. Anyway, to his absolute amazement, exactly the opposite happens. And I love the portrayal of the scene in Zephyrelli's Jesus of Nazareth. Because immediately these fishermen see all these fish and that's good news for them, right? Because now they're going to live. They can sell it on the market. It means good living for a while. And so Peter's on his knees just raking in all these fish when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the smile gets wiped right off his face. His whole countenance changes. You know what he says? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now, Jesus wasn't preaching any sermon about sin. He wasn't thundering about their shortcomings. He just did a miracle. What made the man suddenly say, I'm a sinful man, go away? Because that Hebrew man, that Israelite, well-schooled, knew there was no fish there. And if fish suddenly appear where there was no fish, 
He knows only one person could have been responsible, the creator of the universe. And if I've seen the creator of the universe up close, I'm finished. That's what was going on inside me. So he said, get away. Go away before I die. Instead, like Isaiah, amazing grace. He said, don't be afraid, Peter. I'll make you a fisher of men. Come follow me. What happened to Isaiah? What happened to Peter? This, my brothers and sisters, is good news. This is the gospel. That what should happen to you and me as sinners is what happened to Nadab and to Abihu and to Uzzah and to Ananias and to Sapphira. But what happens instead, amazingly, is what happened to Isaiah and what happened to Peter. And it is found in these beautiful verses in Isaiah chapter 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. So he is holy, he lives in a holy place, and he inhabits holy time. So all the three dimensions of holiness have all converged. But he says, I also dwell with him. And the word dwell means to live in intimacy. Who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Is that amazing? That this God, who is awesomely holy in a class all by himself, who inhabits eternity, who lives in that high and a holy place, says, but I will also dwell in intimate contact with you. With only one provision. Only one provision. If you are contrite and lowly in spirit. The two Hebrew words there, contrite and lowly in spirit, probably combine two ideas of creatureliness and humility. I'm a creature before the creator. What I deserve is what happened to these people. What I get instead is your amazing grace. I don't deserve it, Lord. That's a lowly, contrite spirit. It's, a repent it's, it's to do what Isaiah did. I'm a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet of God. This is a prophet of God saying, I'm a man of unclean lips living among an unclean generation. Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's lowliness and contrite of heart and spirit. And God says, fear not. I will dwell with you in intimacy. You know, my brothers and sisters, it is precisely this terrifying holiness that holds out the hope of thorough cleansing. Because <laughs> if you're honest, and that's what you looked at last week, if we stop covering up, if we stop playing the blame game, and we look at what we're really like, we can get hopeless. Who can ever change this heart of mine? <laughs> God can, because he's infinitely holy. So this awesomely terrifying traumatic encounter is all good news at heart because it takes nothing less than that kind of holiness to be able to cleanse you and me and make you and me holy people. Isn't that good news? Yeah, that's good news. That's good news. Only one condition. Only one condition. That we are lowly in spirit and contrite in heart. Now, Here's the last question with that we're finished. What allows a God who is infinitely holy? I mean, I've said that this is what should have happened to you and me, what happened to Nadab and Abihu and Ananias and Sapphira and Uzzah, but what did happen to us is what happened to Isaiah and Peter. But here's the question. 
That's what should happen if God is holy. How come he's able to be gracious and still remain holy? How come he's able to be gracious and still remain holy? That's where Jesus' death and resurrection comes in. Because on the cross, on the cross, the wrath of God was deflected onto Jesus. And the Bible has a fancy theological word for it. You know, it uses words like redemption and reconciliation, but it uses a word called propitiation, which we don't use in our everyday language. The word propitiation carries as its main idea the deflection of wrath, the satisfaction of wrath. Jesus' death on the cross, amongst other things, satisfied the wrath of a holy God, which demanded if God is to be God and not compromise his holiness, the only way he can treat sinful people like you and me is, is what happened to those five people. That's what happens when a cold water plate touches a hot cold water touches a hot plate. What quenches that wrath of God? Somebody had to deal with that holiness. That's what happened on the cross. That's what made him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin and God turned his back upon him. He experienced the full measure of the wrath of God. That's why God can be merciful to us and still remain God. Because Jesus satisfied all of the demands. That's why the cross is simultaneously the most amazing demonstration of the wrath of God against sin and the love of God for sinners who don't deserve it. In there, God's wrath and God's love meet. And some of the most beautiful hymns of the church celebrate that so beautifully. And so now we can complete the sentence, if this is true, that Jesus died and rose again, we are saved forever from the wrath of God and free to dwell in intimacy with the holy God and become holy people ourselves. So if this is true, that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, you and I are saved forever from the wrath of God, we never have to be motivated by fear again. Our entire journey towards holiness never ever has to be based on, otherwise he's going to be angry with me. Never. Is that not good news? Never ever. Because wrath has been completely satisfied. And it's something we need to do continually. With that, I'm finished. This is a diagram that you guys know well, but it's good to bring it back together again. Just move to the next. You know, way on the left side, the cross, that's where we begin our faith journey. When we realize the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness, and we come to Christ. But as we continue in the Christian life, that top yellow line going up is God's holiness. Now, God's holiness doesn't actually increase. He's unchangingly forever holy. But our appreciation of that holiness can increase. Like a sermon like this might do that. I hope that every single one of you will go out saying, wow, I know a little bit more about God's holiness than I knew at the beginning of it. Well, that's what happened to that line. It's going on. Same time, our sinfulness. You may actually be becoming less sinful. I look at my life today after being a Christian for 52 years, there are many, many things I used to do or, or not do that I'm much better off. No, I'm actually, I think in that way, less sinful, but I'm much more aware of my sinfulness now. So while God's holiness and my sinfulness don't actually change, God's holiness is un, always the same. My awareness of the two increases, which means the sensed gap between God's holiness and my unholiness increases. Guess what? the cross becomes more and more amazing. 
What God did, there wasn't, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't, doesn't actually become more amazing. My experience of it becomes more amazing. And so I sing amazing grace much more powerfully today than when I first started. Go to the next picture. This is how last week's message fits in. What happens though, what happens is because we do not understand God's holiness in ways that we talked about today, we do the cover-up and the blaming technique. For example, we reduce God's holiness by, we, go to the next one, by performance. We attempt to earn God's right. We attempt to please Him. As if, as if my performance can somehow satisfy the holiness of God. So we try to shrink that by our performance. At the other end of the gap, which is what you learned last week, we try to minimize our experience of our sinfulness by pretending. That's the cover-up. That's the blame. That's comparing ourselves. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm much better than this person. If this hadn't happened, it's all your fault. Circumstances, blah, blah, blah. You know, all of that minimizing it. These are some of the ways in which the cross gets less amazing. You continue that, it even begins to shrink. And so this is not only an initial encounter with God, but it is a continual practicing habit of our life. Lowliness of mind, contrite in spirit, experiencing God to be the holy one that he really is, acknowledging our sinfulness, refusing to cover up, refusing to blame, but coming to him in contriteness of spirit, repentant and humble, experiencing grace, forgiveness, and over a period of time, an actual transformation into holiness. Let's pray together. We bow before you, Lord Jesus. We offer our minds and our hearts. It's one thing for us to understand these concepts. It's another thing for the heart to be set burning by this holiness. Give us a fresh passion and a relentless passion to become a holy people. Sanctifying the spaces that we go into as holy. Sanctifying the times in which we live out our lives as holy times. Because a holy God is continuing to purify and cleanse us. We thank you for amazing grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he looked over the city, he wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had recognized your moment. That's my blessing for you, that you will be alert to every encounter with holiness and not miss your moment. Then you will know peace. Peace.